One of the things that we easily take for granted is the fact that we have the Word of God in our own language, and it is divided up for us in an organized set of chapters and verses. This has not always been the case, and it still isn't the case in many places around the world. There are many places around the world where Christians do not have a good, readable translation of the Bible in their own language. I run into this on a regular basis as I travel around the world and speak in various countries. Many of the believers in these locations have a Bible... But the translation is one that was made decades ago, maybe even centuries ago. So it isn't a translation that is very readable or understandable. By contrast, just think about how many translations of the Bible you possess in your home. We have the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New American Standard Update, the ESV, the New Living Translation, and that's just a small sampling. Beloved, we do not appreciate how privileged and blessed we are. Not only do we have multiple good English translations of the Bible, our Bibles are divided up neatly into chapters and verses. That has not always been the case. The chapter divisions in the Bible did not come into being until the year A.D. 1227 when a man named Stephen Langton worked his way through the entire Bible putting in chapter divisions. Now think about that. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to try to find a passage in Isaiah, for example, without chapter divisions? Picture, picture in your mind a Bible study group trying to, trying to find a certain section of Isaiah without chapter divisions. It would not be easy. So the chapter divisions are very helpful. They are a very helpful helpful tool, but we need to keep in mind that they are not inspired, and therefore there are times when the chapter divisions may not be in the best place. The same thing goes for the verse divisions. They were not placed in the Bible until A.D. 1555, when a man named Robert Stephanus worked his way through the entire Bible, putting in the verse divisions. Once again, they are a very helpful tool, But we need to keep in mind that they are not inspired either, and therefore there are times when the verse divisions may not be in the best place. Now the reason why I am introducing the message with this historical background is because the text to which we come this morning spans a chapter division in our Bibles. The unit of thought goes from the end of one chapter on into the next chapter. Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 2. Over near the end of the Bible, uh, finding the book of Revelation and going backwards is sometimes easier. 1 John chapter 2. <coughs> Please follow along as I begin reading in verse 28 and read through verse 3 of chapter 3 where the paragraph concludes. 1 John 2 verse 28. And now, little children... Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. 
Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As you can see from reading through these verses, they form a unit. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 3, we have a unit of thought. The central theme of these verses is our future hope and the impact that should have on us in our lives today. Since that is the theme of this text, we need to begin by discussing the concept of hope as it is presented in the New Testament. In the introduction of his little booklet titled Hope, our anchor of the soul, Dr. Charles Swindoll pens these words, and I quote, Our bodies have been constructed to withstand an an enormous amount of pressure. God has made us to be fairly resilient people. We can survive the heat of the tropics or the icy winds of winter. With undaunted courage, we can go through seasons of illness, financial reversals, domestic disappointments, unemployment, or the death of someone dear to us. If, if we don't lose the one essential ingredient, hope. We can rebound against wind and weather, calamity and tragedy, disease and death, so long as we have our hope. We can live weeks without food, days without water, and even several minutes without air. But take away our hope, and within, within the briefest amount of time we toss in the towel. Knowing that that is true about his creatures, God calls hope the anchor of the soul, the irreplaceable, irreducible source of determination, end quote. The point of that quote is that hope is an indispensable quality of life. In fact, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, wanted to sum up all the Christian graces, he boiled them all down to three. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, And now abide faith, hope, and love. Now we're somewhat familiar with faith and love, but we tend to be in the dark concerning hope. We talk a lot about the importance of faith and love, and we should, but hope is often left out of the discussion. So what is hope? What is the believer's hope? My guess is that if you were to ask the average Christian, what is your hope? You would get one of three answers. Probably most would say that our hope is heaven. But technically that's not true. Colossians 1.5 says our hope is laid up in heaven. So does 1 Peter 1.3 and 4. Our hope is laid up in heaven, but heaven isn't really our hope. Others would say, well then, eternal life is our hope. No, that's not exactly right either. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, not shall have, has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You see, we don't hope for eternal life in the future. We already have it if we're saved. We already have it if we belong to Christ. Others would say that salvation is our hope. But here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, 
Now we are the children of God. Not sometime in the future. Now we are the children of God. So salvation isn't our hope either. Not technically. Now maybe you're scratching your head and wondering, well, if heaven or eternal life or salvation isn't our hope, then what is it? What is our hope? To answer that question, we need to piece together a few different passages of Scripture. So let me do that for you quickly. According to 1 Timothy 1.1, our hope isn't heaven or salvation or eternal life. It is Jesus Christ himself. But what specifically about Jesus is our hope? We would know that Jesus is our hope. That has to be part of the answer. But specifically, what about him? Titus 2.13 says, our hope is the personal appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the significance of that can be seen right here in our text in 1 John 3. Because it says, the moment Jesus appears, we will be changed to be like him. So that's part of our hope. Therefore, when you piece it all together, here's the answer to the question. The hope of the believer is Jesus Christ, His appearing, and our transformation into His likeness. Someday, Jesus will appear in the air air, and gather all believers to Himself. Immediately, we will be changed to be like Him forever. Beloved, that is our hope. And that is the central theme of this text before us. Notice how John begins. He says in verse 28, <coughs> And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You may remember that in the paragraph just prior to this one, John has been warning his readers about some religious teachers who are trying to deceive them. He states that specifically in verse 26. These religious leaders were telling the believers that there is something new, there is something more, there is something different than the gospel they had heard from the beginning. These religious teachers were saying that the believers had missed something or they were missing out on something. So John warned his readers not to listen to them, but rather to remain or abide in the truth they had been taught and they had believed and they had embraced. He was telling them not to move away from that which they had heard. In verse 27, he told them not to listen to these other teachers. In verse 24, he says, Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. John wanted to make sure that his readers saw to it that the truth of the gospel would continue to abide in their hearts and in their lives. He uses the word abide or remain twice in verse 24 and twice again in verse 27. It is obvious that this concept is on his heart and mind. So he repeats the word again right here in this exhortation in verse 28. He says, and now little children abide in him or continue in him. Now think with me about this exhortation for just a moment. The very fact that John exhorts us to do this indicates that it is not automatic for us. What I mean is, it is possible for us to be genuine believers in the Lord, true Christians, but not abide in Him as we ought. This is why Jesus, in John 15, exhorted His disciples to abide in Him as a branch abides in the vine. 
If it were automatic that they would do that, Jesus didn't have to say what he did. So I, I want to emphasize this point. It is not automatic for us as Christians to abide. I illustrated it this way last week. It is a sad fact that it is possible to be married but not be in love. What I mean is, the way things are supposed to work is that two people get married because they love each other and their marriage should increase their love for each other. But sadly, as you well know, people don't always go that way in marriage. They allow things or circumstances or events or their own choices to rob them of their love. So it's possible to be married but not be in love. In the same way, it is possible to be a Christian in a relationship with Jesus Christ but not be abiding in Him and in His love. You're still in the relationship, but the relationship is not near what it should be. John understood that, which is why he says here in verse 28, And now little children abide in Him. As I just mentioned, it is obvious that John is drawing from what he had heard Jesus teach in John 15. So let's go back to that passage for just a a brief moment. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 15. And as you're turning there, let's reacquaint ourselves with the context and the setting of this chapter. Jesus, as these words are spoken, is in the upper room with his men on a Thursday night. The next morning at 9 a.m., he will be nailed to a cross where he will hang until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. On this last Thursday evening, Jesus is eating Passover with his disciples. Shockingly, the disciples were sitting around arguing over who was the greatest. So Jesus interrupted the meal by washing the disciples' feet to teach them a farewell lesson of humility. Jesus was extremely concerned for the spiritual and mental well-being of his men at this point. He was concerned for them for one thing because he knew that they were not getting, they were not grasping the fact that he was going to die, even though he had tried to tell them repeatedly. And now that it is beginning to sink into them, they are starting to panic. So Jesus seeks to calm their troubled hearts in chapter 14, where he opens that chapter by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. Literally, stop having troubled hearts. You believe in God, believe also in me. You've been raised as God-fearing Jews to believe in God, to trust him. Now trust me like you trust him. The disciples were troubled. They were confused. They could see that hatred for Jesus was growing among the Jewish leaders. That was not a good sign. They knew that. In chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus predicted that one of the disciples would betray him. In chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus told them that he was going away to a place that they could not come to immediately. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus also told the disciples that they were all going to forsake him on this night. And if all that wasn't bad enough, Jesus also told them that Peter, their leader and the strongest of the bunch, was going to deny him three times before the night was over. All of this dropped like a bomb. So the disciples are in a tailspin emotionally. What should they do? Jesus tells them what to do right here in chapter 15, verse 4. He says this, Abide in me. 
and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word abide is obviously the key concept that Jesus wanted to communicate to his men in this chapter because the word is used ten times in the first eleven verses of this fifteenth chapter. Ten times in eleven verses. So Jesus says to his men, abide in me. The disciples were abiding, but they needed to remain there to grow stronger. And he tells them that then and only then would they bear fruit. A branch has no capability whatsoever to produce even the minutest amount of fruit. It must remain and grow strong in its relationship to the vine. So Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Notice the progression of thought that Jesus makes through these verses. It's really interesting. At the beginning of verse 2 he talks about fruit. At the end of verse 2 he talks about more fruit. And here in verse 5 he is encouraging much fruit. But be careful. Be careful not to get sidetracked into concentrating on fruit and miss the point of the passage. The point that Jesus is making here is that He is the source of fruitfulness. It is not our methods, our working, our striving, or our commitment that produces fruit. It's His life through us. It is really sad how many Christians never come to realize that truth. They just labor along in the Christian life without ever coming to realize that truth. They want to be fruitful. So they try harder to be the best for God they can be. But as one man put it, God's method is not that Christ helps you bring forth fruit any more than the vine helps the branch. It's not even that Christ works and you help Him all you can. Only those who have learned the lesson of the utter hopelessness of the branch can fully appreciate this wonderful truth, end quote. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, yes, but, but shouldn't I be concerned about doing something to produce fruit? No. It's not fruit you need to concentrate on. It's life. It's relationship. The purpose of Bible study, scripture memory, prayer is not to produce fruit, but to cultivate life. It's to cultivate the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. And when the life of Jesus Christ is flowing through us, then He will bear fruit through us. It it is obvious that this was very important to Jesus. He spends His last night talking about it with His men. Why is this so important to Jesus? Notice verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. That's why this is so important to Jesus, and John got it. Remember, John is sitting here on this night. He's sitting there listening to Jesus, and this truth riveted itself in John's mind. He never forgot it. So 60 years later, when he wrote his first letter, he exhorted his readers to abide in Christ. Now back to our text in 1 John chapter 2. So we see that John's exhortation in 1 John chapter 2 comes directly from what Jesus taught his disciples in John 15. 
John says in verse 28, after this exhortation to abide, he gives us an, an incentive. I want you to notice what it is. Verse 28, 1 John 2, And now, little children, abide in him. He could have stopped there just with the exhortation, the command. But he doesn't. He says, So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Beloved, whenever we read a statement like this in Scripture, we need to stop to consider the implications. If John tells us to abide in Christ so we won't be ashamed before Him at His coming, the clear implication is that it is possible to be ashamed before Christ at His coming, and it is possible not to be ashamed before Christ at His coming. Both are possibilities. Now, why am I stating the obvious? I'll, I'll tell you why I'm stating the obvious. Some Christians, and I know many, and it's usually those who have a very sensitive conscience, a very sensitive spirit, some Christians assume they are going to be ashamed before Christ at His coming, regardless of how they live. They've just sort of accepted that fact. They say, I, I can never be what I would want to be as a Christian. I can never be what I ought to be. So I've just accepted I'm going to be ashamed when I stand before Christ. It doesn't have to be that way. Beloved, that doesn't need to be the case. Don't just accept that. Just abide in Him, John says. Stay close to Him so that you will be excited to see Him when He appears. You don't have to assume or just accept the notion that, well, because Jesus is so glorious and I'm such a sinner, I know I'm just going to be ashamed. It doesn't have to be that way. On the other hand, According to this verse, there are some Christians who are going to be ashamed when Jesus appears because they are not living the way they ought to be living. If you are involved in things you should not be involved in, you will be ashamed when you stand before Jesus Christ as a Christian. Let me be specific. Can you imagine what it will be like if you are looking at pornography when Jesus appears to call you to stand before him? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like if you were in the process of getting drunk when Jesus appears to call you to stand before him? Can you imagine what it would be like if you are telling a lie at that very moment or you're stealing something, doing something dishonest, dishonest the very moment when Jesus appears and calls us to stand before him? Can you imagine what it would be like if you have lost your temper and you are blowing up at someone the very moment when Jesus appears to call you to stand before him? Can you imagine what it would be like if you are engaged in immorality the very moment when Jesus appears to call you to stand before him? Can you imagine what it would be like if you were telling a dirty joke or using profanity the very moment when Jesus appears to call you to stand before him? Now, that's, that's not an exhaustive list. It just simply illustrates the point. Some Christians are going to be ashamed when Jesus appears, but it doesn't have to be that way. That's John's point. It doesn't have to be that way. John tells us here in verse 28 to abide in Christ. Just stay close to Him. Just stay walking with Him. Stay in fellowship with Him. Stay in harmony with Him. And if we do, we don't have any reason to be concerned that we'll be ashamed when He appears and we stand before Him. Living righteously for Christ 
gives us confidence to stand before him someday because it is a confirmation that we truly belong to him. And that's why John adds the next verse. Notice what he says in verse 29. He says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. It's important that we don't misunderstand what John is saying in this verse. There are several ways that this verse could easily be mistaken or misinterpreted. So let me mention some of them. Number one, he is not saying, clearly he is not saying, that by living a righteous life or trying to live a righteous life, that makes us a child of God. That would contradict everything that is taught throughout the New Testament. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by works. It's not by trying to live a good life. What John is saying is that the person who does abide in Christ and lives a righteous life demonstrates, verifies, proves that he or she has really been born of God. Let me explain this further. When God saves us, He gives us new life through the process of a new spiritual birth. John 3 talks about being born again or being born from above. That that process, that exchange of salvation is when God brings us into his family and changes our hearts to give us a new desire to love him and live for him. That sets us on a course of righteousness. However, you know very well that even though you are, if you are a Christian, you know that even though you are a Christian and God has changed your heart and set you in a new heart direction, that it doesn't mean that you will automatically and always go that direction. We have enemies that work against our new heart direction. Specifically, we have three. There is the world the flesh, and the devil. We talked about that recently back in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. All three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three try to sidetrack us and defeat us and misdirect us. But if we abide in Christ, verse 28, and live righteously, verse 29, that is evidence that we truly belong to God and have been born of Him. Now, it is possible to be a child of God and not be living like we are supposed to live, as we just talked about in relation to verse 28. When a child of God lives that kind of contradictory life, it raises questions in the minds of others, and maybe even in his own mind, concerning whether or not that person has truly been born of God. It confuses the issue. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe this has happened in your own life or in the life of a friend or a relative or a family member. Someone who you were confident was a child of God. They get off track and then it starts raising questions in your mind. Or maybe if that's been your own personal experience, maybe it even raises questions in your own mind. Am I really a a child of God? Do I really belong to Christ? The result is a lack of assurance. There is a lack of assurance in the minds of others and often a lack of assurance in the person's own heart. What John is saying here in verses 28 and 29 is this. All of that doubt, all of that confusion, all of that lack of assurance is removed when a person demonstrates that he or she is truly a child of God because of a life that practices righteousness. 
Both of these verses, now watch this, both of these verses, 28 and 29, have a common theme, and that is the theme of confidence or assurance. Verse 28 says, we can have confidence to stand before the Lord if we will abide in Him. We can have confidence. Verse 29 says, we can have assurance or confidence that we have really been born of God if we practice righteousness. So you see, John wants us to have confidence. He wants us to have assurance. That's one of the reasons why he wrote this letter, as we will see in some of the passages that are yet to come down the road. John wants us to have confidence and assurance. Maybe it would be better if I said it this way. The Lord himself wants us to have confidence and assurance. That is such a superior way to live the Christian life. It is miserable to go through life with doubts that plague you and weigh you down. And I know that some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, exactly what I'm describing. It is miserable to go through life with doubts that plague you and weigh you down. But beloved, it doesn't have to be that way. That's the point of these two verses. Verse 28 says, We can have confidence to stand before the Lord if we will abide in Him. And then verse 29 says, we can have assurance that we have really been born of God if we practice righteousness. It's that basic. Abide in Christ, verse 28, and practice righteousness, verse 29, because we belong to God. Which is why John adds the next verse. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. You can see that John is filled with amazement by the words he penned at the beginning of this verse. I didn't check this to be sure, but my guess is that all of our English translations, or most of them, have an exclamation point here in this verse. Behold how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. Exclamation point. The Father has made a way for us to be in His family. The Father is willing for us to be called His children. Now think about that. Despite the fact that we fall short in representing Him, despite the fact that we fail Him, and we, we often present a poor picture of Him to others around us, still, still the Father has lavished His great love upon us in allowing us to be called His children. Beloved, don't ever, don't ever let that truth become commonplace to you. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, don't let that become commonplace to you. God has immensely demonstrated His colossal love to us in a monumental way. He takes us in and He owns us as His children. He calls us His children. He's willing to call us by His own name. This is where I get so frustrated with my own limited vocabulary. Words fail me to be able to express what a staggering privilege it is for us to be children of God. 
God has called us out of this world into a unique relationship with Him. And that results in this world not understanding us just like they didn't understand our Lord. That's what John says at the end of this verse. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because the world did not know Him. God has called us out of this world. He's called us to be unique. Therefore, many people around us just don't understand us. Now, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Unless everyone you know in your circle, family and friends, unless all of those people are Christians, then you know you have people in your circle who just don't understand you. Family members, friends, they just can't figure you out. They, they, they don't know what makes you tick. Why do you do what you do? Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you act like you act? Why do you live like you live? As one man put it, the real aliens in the world are not extraterrestrials, but Christians. We're the aliens. Like our Lord, the world doesn't understand us and can't figure what makes us tick. We seem strange in many ways, frankly. We don't have the same loves that so many people around us have. We don't have the same values. We don't have the same priorities. We don't have the same lifestyle. We give our time to eternal pursuits. We give our energy to eternal pursuits. We give our money to eternal pursuits because this world is not our home. That is why we are described in the New Testament as pilgrims. We are described as sojourners. We are described as strangers. We are children of God not children of this world. And verse 2 says, again with exclamation, Beloved, now, not sometime in the future this is going to happen, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed or made known or manifested what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, we know that we are going to be like Jesus someday. Because that is what Scripture teaches. But that reality hasn't been made known to people who belong to this world. People in this world do not know that if you are a Christian, that someday you are going to be like Jesus Christ. The, The world doesn't know that. They don't see that because we don't always look so much like Jesus Christ today, unfortunately. We know we are children of God, and we know that when Jesus is revealed, we will be like Him. But that is not something that is known or understood by people in this world. John is basically saying here in verse 2 that we know what the world does not know about us. We know something about us that the world does not know about us. Because we are children of God, we know what God has in store for us, but that that is completely foreign. To the people of this world. They do not grasp the magnitude of God's destiny for those of us who are His children. They have no idea, no clue of our destiny and what the Lord has planned for us as His people. Now, John is not saying, in the way this is worded, some people kind of take it the wrong direction. John is not saying that what we will be hasn't been revealed to us Because he goes on to say that we know that we will be like Christ. He is saying that what we will be hasn't been revealed or made known or it hasn't happened yet. But it will happen. The Lord Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And when that happens, 
We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. Words can't express the wonder that should fill our hearts and minds when we think about this reality. Do you believe all this is true? If you really do, verse 3 gives us the response. Verse 3 says this, And everyone who has this hope in him, not in himself, but in Christ, the him should be capitalized, everyone who has this hope in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. Here's what John is saying. Here's what the Holy Spirit is saying. If you really believe that Jesus is coming back to get us someday and that we will be made to be like him, if you really believe that, not just claim to believe it, not just say you believe it, if you really believe that, it will have a purifying effect on your life. Let me turn the coin over to the other side and say it this way. If it's not having a purifying effect on your life, then you don't really believe it, no matter what you claim. The proof is not in what we claim, it's in how we live. The proof is, in, is not in what we say, it's in how we live. And beloved, this, this that we've looked at here, this is our blessed hope. This is the hope for the child of God. Our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ, His appearing, His personal appearing, and our transformation into His likeness. That is our hope. And I ask you again, do you really believe that? And let me say this. Don't answer with your words. Answer with your life. That's the real answer. Let's bow together in closing. As you bow your head and close your eyes, asking yourself that question once again, do I really believe this is going to happen someday? Do I really believe Jesus will appear and he will take me to himself and I will be made like him? I will be like him. To answer that question, just look at your life. Is this having a purifying effect on your life? Are you growing to be more like Jesus Christ daily? If not, or if you're not interested in that, then you don't really believe this. Don't kid yourself. Don't, don't fool yourself. Don't deceive yourself. You don't really believe this if it doesn't have a purifying effect on your life. So look at your life and think about what it looks like. Are, are there things in your life that you are doing that are such that if Jesus appeared that very moment, you would be ashamed? You'd be ashamed to stand before him? If there are things in your life like that, you need to deal with those. You need to get rid of them. Because John says, the Holy Spirit says, abide in him. Abide, stay close to him so that when he appears... We don't have to shrink back. We don't have to be ashamed. We can have confidence. That's the way you want to stand before the Lord, beloved. You want to stand before him with confidence. Not shame. Not regret. So deal with anything in your life 
that would lead you to have regret and shame if Jesus calls you home today, tomorrow. Now, if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no way you could stand before him and be confident. You're not a child of God. Just because you live in America or just because you believe there's a God, you're only a child of God. Scripture is clear. You're only a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to repent of your sin. You need to let go of whatever is holding you back and receive Jesus Christ by faith. Surrender your life to him so that you can have confidence and assurance you belong to him and you will be with him for eternity. Father, what a, what a practical passage of Scripture, exhorting us to abide in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stay close to him, to remain in him, so that when he appears, we can have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. Father, I pray for us as believers, all of us gathered in this room who do know your Son, we are your children, that doesn't guarantee that there are not things in our lives for which we should be ashamed. And you know this gathering. You know everyone in this room. And you know those who are playing with sin, who are fooling around with sin, who are dabbling in sin, and who would be ashamed if the Lord Jesus were to come back. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction to your people, to your children, to get those things out of our lives so that we can have confidence to stand before the Lord Jesus. And we pray in closing for anyone here in our midst who doesn't even know you as Father, who, who can't rightly call you Father because they don't know your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit bring him or her to repentance, to surrender to Jesus Christ, to come to know him today, to live for him and to look forward to his return. Use the powerful truth of this passage we have considered this morning to have a purifying effect on our lives. We pray this not only for our own sake, our own walk with you, but we pray this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.